Section 35 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. Exploration of the World by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 3, Part 1b. All that concerns John and Sebastian Cabot has been, until recently, shrouded by a mist, which is not even now completely dissipated, notwithstanding the conscientious labors of Biddle, the American, in 1831, and of our compatriot, Monsieur de Avenzac, as also those of Mr. Nicholson, the Englishman, who, taking advantage of the discoveries made among the English, Spanish, and Venetian archives, has built up an imposing monument, of which some parts, however, are open to discussion. It is from the last two named works that we shall draw the materials for this rapid sketch, but principally from Mr. Nichols' book, which has this advantage over the smaller volume of Monsieur de Avenzac that it relates the whole life of Sebastian Cabot. It has been found impossible to determine with certainty either the name or the nationality of John Cabot, and still less to settle the period of his birth. John Cabota, Coboto, or Cabot, must have been born, if not in Genoa itself, as Monsieur d'Avenzac asserts, at least in the neighborhood of that town, possibly at Castiglione, about the first quarter of the fifteenth century. Some historians have considered that he was an Englishman, and perhaps Mr. Nichols, from national considerations, is inclined to adopt this opinion. At least this seems to be the meaning of the expressions used by him. What we do know, without room for doubt, is that John Cabot came to London to occupy himself with commerce, and that he soon settled at Bristol, then the second town in the kingdom, in one of the suburbs which had received the name of Cathay, probably from the number of Venetians who resided there, and the trade carried on by them with the countries of the extreme east. It was at Bristol that Cabot's two youngest children were born, Sebastian and Sancho, if we may rely upon the following account given by the old chronicler Eden. Sebastian Cabot told me that he was born at Bristol, and that at four years of age he went with his father to Venice, returning with him to England some years later. This made people imagine that he was born in Venice. In 1476, John Cabot was at Venice, and there, on the 29th of March, he received letters of naturalization, which proved that he was not a native of this city, and that he must have merited the honor by some service rendered to the Republic. Monsieur de Avanzac is inclined to think that he devoted himself to the study of cosmography and navigation, perhaps even in company with the celebrated Florentine, Paul Toscanelli, with whose theories upon the distribution of land and sea on the surface of the globe he would certainly be acquainted at this time. He may also have heard mention made of the island situated in the Atlantic, and known by the names of Antilla, the land of the seven cities, or Brazil. What seems more certain is that his business affairs took him to the Levant, and, it is said, to Mecca, and that while there he would learn from what country came the spices, which then constituted the most important branch of Venetian commerce. Whatever value we may attach to these speculative theories, it is at least certain that John Cabot founded an important mercantile house at Bristol. His son Sebastian, who in these first voyages had acquired an inclination for the sea, studied navigation, as far as it was then known, and made some excursions on the sea, to render himself as familiar with the practice of this art as he already was with its theory. For seven years past, says the Spanish ambassador in a dispatch of the 25th of July, 1498, speaking of an expedition commanded by Cabot, the people of Bristol had fitted out two, three, or four caravels every year to go in search of the island of Brazil, and of the seven cities, according to the ideas of the Genoese. 
At this time, the whole of Europe resounded with the fame of the discoveries of Columbus. It awoke in me, says Sebastian Cabot, in a narrative preserved by Ramusio, a great desire and a kind of ardor in my heart to do myself also something famous, and knowing by examining the globe that if I sailed by the west wind I should reach India more rapidly, I at once made my project known to His Majesty, who was much satisfied with it. The king to whom Cabot addressed himself was the same Henry the Seventh, who, some years before, had refused all support to Christopher Columbus. It is evident that he received with favor the project which John and Sebastian Cabot had just submitted to him, and though Sebastian, in the fragment which we have just quoted, attributes to himself alone all the honor of the project, it is no less true that his father was the promoter of the enterprise, as the following charter shows, which we translate in an abridged form. We, Henry, preserve our much-beloved Jehan Cabot, citizen of Venice, and Louise, Sebastian, and Sancho, his sons, under our flag, and with five vessels of the tonnage and crew which they shall judge suitable to discover at their own expense and charge, we grant to them as well as to their heirs and assigns license to occupy, possess, at the charge of, by them, upon the profits, benefits, and advantages accruing from this navigation, to pay us in merchandise or in money the fifth part of the profit thus obtained for each of their voyages, every time that they shall return to the port of Bristol, at which port they shall be compelled to land. We promise and guarantee to them, their heirs and assigns, that they shall be exempt from all custom-house duties on the merchandise which they shall bring from the countries thus discovered. We command and direct all our subjects, as well on land as on the sea, to render assistance to the same Jehan and to his sons, given at the fifth day of March, 1495. Such was the charter that was granted to John Cabot and his sons upon their return from the American continent, and not, as certain authors have pretended, anterior to this voyage. From the time that the news of the discovery made by Columbus had reached England, that is to say, probably in 1493, John and Sebastian Cabot prepared the expedition at their own expense, and set out at the beginning of the year 1494 with the idea of reaching Cathay, and finally the Indies. There can be no doubt upon this point, for in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris is preserved a unique copy of the map engraved in 1544, that is to say, in the lifetime of Sebastian Cabot, which mentions this voyage, and the precise and exact date of the discovery of Cape Breton. It is probable that we must attribute to the intrigues of the Spanish ambassador the delay which occurred in Cabot's expedition, for the whole of the year 1496 passed without the voyage being accomplished. The following year he set out at the beginning of summer. After having again sighted the Terra Buena Vista, he followed the coast, and was not long in perceiving to his great disappointment that it trended towards the north. Then, sailing along it to make sure if I could not find some passage, I could not perceive any, and having advanced as far as fifty-six degrees, and seeing that at this point the land turned towards the east, I despaired of finding any passage, and I was about to examine the coast in this direction towards the equinoctial line, always with the same object of finding a passage to the Indies, and in the end I reached the country now called Florida, where, as provisions were beginning to run short, I resolved to return to England, this narrative, of which we have given the commencement above, was related by Cabot of Forcaster, forty or fifty years after the event. Also, is it not astonishing that Cabot mixes up in it two perfectly distinct voyages, that of 1494 and that of 1497? Let us add some reflections upon this narrative. The first land scene was, without doubt, the North Cape, the northern extremity of the island of Cape Breton, and the island which is opposite to it is that of Prince Edward long known by the name of St. John's Island. 
Cabot probably penetrated into the estuary of the St. Lawrence, which he took for an arm of the sea, near to the place where Quebec now stands, and coasted along the northern shore of the Gulf, so that he did not see the coast of Labrador stretching away in the east. He took Newfoundland for an archipelago, and continued his course to the south, not, doubtless, as far as Florida, as he states himself, the time occupied by the voyage making it impossible that he could have descended so low, but as far as the Chesapeake Bay. These were the countries which the Spaniards afterwards called Terra de Efestam Gomez. On the 3rd of February, 1498, King Henry the Seventh signed at Westminster some new letters patent. He empowered John Cabot, or his representative, being duly authorized, to take in English ports six vessels of two hundred tons burden, and to procure all that should be required for their equipment, at the same price as if they were for the crown. He was allowed to take on board such master mariners, pages, and other subjects as might of their own accord wish to go, and pass with him to the recently discovered lands and islands. John Cabot bore the expense of the equipment of two vessels, and three others were fitted out at the cost of the merchants of Bristol. In all probability it was death, a sudden and unexpected death, which prevented John Cabot from taking command of this expedition. His son Sebastian then assumed the direction of the fleet, which carried three hundred men and provisions for a year. After having sighted land at forty-five degrees, Sebastian Cabot followed the coast as far as fifty-eight degrees, perhaps even higher, but then it became so cold, and although it was the month of July, there was so much floating ice about that it would have been impossible to go further northwards. The days were very long, and the nights excessively light, an interesting detail by which to fix the latitude reached, for we know that below the sixtieth parallel of latitude the longest days are eighteen hours. These various reasons make Sebastian Cabot decide to put about, and he touched at the Balacos Islands, of which the inhabitants, who were clothed in the skins of animals, were armed with bows and arrows, lance, javelin, and wooden sword. The navigators here caught a great number of codfish, they were even so numerous, says an old narrative, that they hindered ships from advancing. After having sailed along the coast of America as far as 38 degrees, Cabot set out for England, where he arrived at the beginning of autumn. This voyage had indeed a threefold object, that of discovery, commerce, and colonization, as is shown by the number of vessels which took part in it, and the strength of their crews. Nevertheless, it does not appear that Cabot landed anyone, or that he made any attempts at forming a settlement, either in Labrador or in Hudson's Bay, which he was destined to explore more completely in 1517 in the reign of Henry VIII, or even to the south of the Bocos, known by the general name of Newfoundland. At the close of this expedition, which was almost entirely unproductive, we lose sight of Sebastian Cabot, if not completely, at least so as to be insufficiently informed about his deeds and voyages until 1517. The traveller Hoyeda, whose various enterprises we have related above, had left Spain in the month of May, 1499. We know that in this voyage he met with an Englishman at Cocobaco, on the coast of America. Can this have been Cabot? Nothing has come to light to enable us to settle this point. But we may believe that Cabot did not remain idle, and that he would be likely to undertake some fresh expedition. What we know is, that in spite of the solemn engagements he had made with Cabot, the King of England granted certain privileges of trading in the countries which he had discovered to the Portuguese and to the merchants of Bristol. This ungenerous manner of recognizing his services wounded the navigator, and decided him to accept the offers which had been made to him on different occasions to enter the Spanish service. From the death of Vespucius, which happened in 1512, Cabot was the navigator held in most renown. To attach him to himself, Ferdinand wrote on the 13th of September, 1512, to Lord Willoughby, commander-in-chief of the troops which had been transported to Italy, to treat with the Venetian navigator. As soon as he arrived in Castile, Cabot received the rank of captain by an edict dated the 20th of October, 1512, 
with a salary of five thousand maravedis. Seville was fixed upon for his residence, until an opportunity might arise of turning his talents and expedition to account. There was a plan on foot for his taking the command of a very important expedition, when Ferdinand, the Catholic, died on the 23rd of January, 1516. Cabot returned at once to England, probably having obtained a leave of absence. Eden tells us that the following year, Cabot was appointed with Sir Thomas Pert to the command of a fleet which was to reach China by the northwest. On the 11th of June, he was in Hudson's Bay at 67.5 degrees of latitude. The sea free from ice spread itself out before him so far that he reckoned upon success for his enterprise, when the faint-heartedness of his companion, together with the cowardice and mutinous spirit of the crews, who refused to go any further, obliged him to return to England. In his Theretum Obus Terrarum, Ortelius traces the shape of Hudson's Bay as it really is. He even indicates at its northern extremity a strait leading northwards. How can the geographer have attained such exactness? Who, says Mr. Nichols, can have given him the information set forth in his map, if not Cabot? On his return to England, Cabot found the country ravaged by a horrible plague, which put a stop even to commercial transactions. Soon, either because the time of his leave had expired, or that he wished to escape from the pestilence, or that he was recalled to Spain, the Venetian navigator returned to that country. In 1518, on the 5th of February, Cabot was made pilot major, with a salary which, added to that which he already had, made a total of 125,000 maravedas, say, 300 ducats. He did not actually exercise the function of his office until Charles V returned from England. His principal duty consisted in examining pilots who were not allowed to go to the Indies until after having passed this exam. This epoch was by no means favorable to great maritime expeditions. The struggle between France and Spain absorbed all the resources, both in men and money, of these two countries. Cabot, too, who seems to have adopted science for his fatherland much more than any particular country, made some overtures to Contorini, the ambassador of Venice, to take service on board the fleets of the Republic. But when the favorable answer of the Council of Ten arrived, he had other projects in his head, and did not carry his attempt any further. In the month of April, 1524, Cabot presided at a conference of mariners and cosmographers, which met at Badajoz, to discuss the question whether the Moluccas belonged, according to the celebrated Treaty of Cordesillas, to Spain or Portugal. On the 31st of May, it was decided that the Moluccas were within the Spanish waters by 20 degrees. Perhaps this resolution of the Junta, of which Cabot was president, and which again placed in the hands of Spain a great part of the spice trade, was not without its influence upon the resolutions of the Council of the Indies. However this may be, in the month of September of the same year, Cabot was authorized to take the command of three vessels of a hundred tons and a small caravel, carrying together a hundred and fifty men, with the title of Captain General. The declared aim of this voyage was to pass through the Straits of Magellan, carefully to explore the western coast of America, and to reach the Moluccas, where they would take in on their return a cargo of spices. The month of August, 1525, had been fixed upon as the date of departure, but the intrigues of Portugal succeeded in delaying it until April, 1526. Different circumstances seem from this moment to have augured ill for the voyage. Cabot had only a nominal authority, and the association of merchants who had defrayed the expenses of the equipment not accepting him willingly as chief, had found means to oppose all the plans of the Venetian sailor. Thus it was that in place of the man whom he had appointed as second-in-command, another was imposed upon him, and that instructions destined to be unsealed when at sea were delivered to each captain. They contained this absurd agreement, that in case of the death of the captain-general, eleven individuals were to succeed him, each in his turn. Was not this an encouragement given to assassination? Scarcely was the fleet out of sight of land, when discontent appeared. 
the rumor spread that the captain general was not equal to his task then as they saw that these calumnies did not affect him they pretended that the flotilla was already short of provisions the mutiny broke out as soon as land was reached but cabot was not the man to allow himself to be annihilated by it he had suffered too much from sir thomas's pert cowardice to bear such an insult in order to nip the evil in the bud he had the mutinous captain seized and notwithstanding their reputation and the brilliancy of their past services he made them get into a boat and abandoned them on shore four months afterwards they had the good luck to be picked up by a portuguese expedition which seems to have had orders to thwart the plans of cabot the venetian navigator then penetrated into the rio de la plata the exploration of which had been commenced by his predecessor the pilot major de solis the expedition was not then composed of more than two vessels one having been lost during the voyage cabot sailed up the argent river and discovered an island which he called francis gabriel and upon which he built the fort of san salvador and trusting the command of it to antonio de la Caya. cabot had the keel removed from one of his caravels and with it being towed by his small boats entered the piranha built a new fort at the confluence of the Carmacaraja and tercertio and after having thus secured his line of retreat he pursued the course of these rivers further into the interior arriving at the confluence of the piranha and the paraguay he followed the second the direction of which agreed best with his project of reaching the region of the west where silver was to be obtained but it was not long before the aspect of the country changed and the attitude of the inhabitants altered also until now they had collected in crowds astonished at the sight of the vessels but upon the cultivated shores of the paraguay they courageously opposed the stranger's landing and three spaniards having tried to knock down the fruit from a palm tree a struggle took place in which three hundred natives lost their lives this victory had disabled twenty-five spaniards it was too much for cabot who rapidly removed his wounded to the fort san spirito and retired still presenting a bull's front to the enemy cabot had already sent two of his companions to the emperor to acquaint him with the attempt at revolt of the captains to explain to him the motives which have obliged him to modify the course marked out for his voyage and to request aid for him both in men and provisions the answer arrived at last the emperor approved what cabot had done and ordered him to colonize the country in which he had just made a settlement but did not send him either one man or a single maravedi cabot tried to procure the resources which he needed in the country and caused some attempts at cultivation to be commenced at the same time to keep his troops in exercise he reduced the neighboring nations to obedience had some forts built and again sailing up the paraguay he reached Potsi, the watercourses of the andes which feed the basin of the atlantic at last he prepared to enter peru from whence came the gold and silver which he had seen in the possession of the natives but it needed more troops than he could muster to attempt the conquest of this vast region the emperor however was quite unable to send many his european wars absorbed all his resources the cortez refused to vote new subsidies and the moluccas had just been pledged to portugal in this state of affairs after having occupied the country for five years and waited all this time for the assistance which never came cabot decided to evacuate a part of his settlements and he returned with some of his people to spain the rest amounting to a hundred and twenty men who were left to guard the fort of san spirito after many vicissitudes which cannot be related here perished by the hands of the indians or were obliged to take refuge in the portuguese settlements on the coast of brazil it is to the horses imported by cabot that is due the wonderful race of wild horses which may be seen in large troops on the pampas of la plata at the present day this was the only result of the expedition some time after his return to spain cabot resigned his office and went to bristol where he settled about fifteen forty eight that is to say at the beginning of the reign of edward the sixth what were the motives of this fresh change was cabot discontented at having been left to his own resources during the expedition was he hurt at the manner in which his services were recompensed it is impossible to say 
but Charles V took advantage of Cabot's departure to deprive him of his pension, which Edward VI hastened to replace, causing him to receive 250 marks annually, about 116 pounds and a fraction, which was a considerable sum for that period. The post which Cabot occupied in England seems to be best expressed by the name of Intendant of the Navy. Under the authority of the King and Council, he appears to have superintended all maritime affairs. He issues licenses, he examines pilots, he frames instructions, he draws maps, a varied and complicated function for which he has possessed the rare gift of both practical and theoretical knowledge. At the same time, he instructed the young king in cosmography, explained to him the variation of the compass, and was successful in interesting him in nautical matters and in the glory resulting from maritime discoveries. It was a high and almost unique situation. Cabot used it to put into execution a project which he had long cherished. At this period, we might almost say that there was no trade in England. All commerce was in the hands of the Hanseatic towns, Antwerp, Hamburg, Brenham, etc. These companies of merchants had, on various occasions, obtained considerable reductions in import duties, and had ended up by monopolizing the English trade. Cabot held that Englishmen possessed as good qualifications as these merchants for becoming manufacturers, and that the already powerful navy which England possessed might assist marvelously in the export of the products of the soil and of the manufacturers. What was the use of having recourse to strangers when people could do their own business? If they had been unable up to this time to reach Cathay and India by the northwest, might they not endeavor to reach it by the northeast? And if they did not succeed, would they not find in this direction more commercial and more civilized people than the miserable Esquimaux on the coast of Labrador and Newfoundland? Cabot assembled some leading London merchants, laid his projects before them, and formed them into an association, of which on the 14th of December, 1551, he was named president for life. At the same time, he exerted himself most vigorously with the king, and after having made him understand the wrong which the monopoly enjoyed by strangers did to his own subjects, he obtained its abolition on the 23rd of February, 1551, and inaugurated the practice of free trade. The Association of English Merchants, under the name of Merchant Adventurers, hastened to have some vessels built, adapted to the difficulties to be encountered in the navigation of the Arctic regions. The first improvement which the English marine owed to Cabot was the sheathing of the keels, which he had done in Spain, but which had not hitherto been practiced in England. A flotilla of three vessels was assembled at Deptford. They were the Buena Speranza, of which the command was given to Sir Hugh Willoughby, a brave gentleman who had earned a high reputation in war, the Buena Confidencia, Captain Cornwall Dortenforth, and the Bonaventure, Captain Richard Chancellor, a clever sailor, and a particular friend of Cabot's, he received the title of Pilot Major. The sailing master of the Bonaventure was Stephen Burrow, an accomplished mariner, who was destined to make numerous voyages in the North Seas, and later to become pilot-in-chief for England. Although age and its important duties prevented Cabot from placing himself at the head of the expedition, he wished at least to preside over all the details of the equipment. He himself wrote out the instructions which have been preserved, and which prove the prudence and skill of this distinguished navigator. He there recommends the use of the log line, an instrument intended to measure the speed of the vessel, and he desires that the journal of events happening at sea be kept with regularity, and that all information as to the character, manners, habits, and resources of the people visited, and the productions of the country, may be recorded in writing. The sailors were to offer no violence to the natives, but to act towards them with courtesy. All blasphemy and swearing was to be punished with severity, and also drunkenness. The religious exercises are prescribed, prayers are to be said morning and evening, and the holy scriptures are to be read once in the day. Cabot ends by recommending union and concord above all, and reminds the captains of the greatness of their enterprise and the honor which they might hope to gain. Finally, he promises them to add his prayers to theirs for the success of their common work. The squadron set sail on the 20th of May, 1558, 
in presence of the court assembled at Greenwich, amid an immense concourse of people, after fetes and rejoicing, at which the king, who was ill, could not be present. Near the Lufton Islands on the coast of Norway, at the bearing of Wadwas, the squadron was separated from the Bonaventure. Carried away by the storm, Willoughby's two vessels touched, without doubt, at Nova Zembla, and were forced by the ice to return southward. On the 18th of September, they entered the port formed by the mouth of the river Arnza in East Lapland. Sometime afterwards, the Bueno Convenencia, separated from Willoughby by a fresh tempest, returned to England. As to the latter, some Russian fishermen found his vessel the following year in the midst of the ice. The whole crew had died of cold. This, at least, is what we are led to suppose from the journal kept by the unfortunate Willoughby up to the month of January, 1554. Chancellor, after having waited in vain for his two consorts at the rendezvous which had been agreed upon in case of separation, thought they must about sailed him, and rounding the North Cape, he entered a vast gulf which was none other than the White Sea. He then landed at the mouth of Duena, near the monastery of St. Nicholas, on the spot upon which the town of Archangel was soon to stand. The inhabitants of these desolate places told him that the country was under the dominion of the Grand Duke of Russia. Chancellor resolved at once to go to Moscow, in spite of the enormous distance which separated him from it. The Tsar then on the throne was Ivan IV, Vesuvelevich, called the Terrible. For some time before this, the Russians had shaken off the Tartar yoke, and Ivan had united all the petty rival principalities in one body politic, of which the power was already becoming considerable. The situation of Russia, exclusively continental, far from any frequented sea, isolated from the rest of Europe, of which it did not yet form part, so much were its habits and manners still Asiatic, promised success to Chancellor. The Tsar, who up to this time had not been able to procure European merchandise, except by way of Poland, and who wished to gain access to the German seas, saw with pleasure the attempts of the English to establish trade which would be beneficial to both parties. He not only received Chancellor courteously, but he made him most advantageous offers, granted him great privileges, and encouraged him, by the kindness of his reception, to repeat his voyage. Chancellor sold his merchandise to great advantage, and after taking on board another cargo of furs, of seal and whale oils, copper and other products, returned to England, carrying a letter from the Tsar. The advantages which the company of merchant adventurers had derived from this first voyage encouraged them to attempt a second. So Chancellor, the following year, made a fresh voyage to Archangel, and took two of the company's agents to Russia, who concluded an advantageous treaty with the Tsar. Then he set out again for England, with an ambassador and his suite, sent by Ivan to Great Britain. Of the four vessels which composed the flotilla, one was lost on the coast of Norway, another as it left Rontheim, and the Bonadventure, on board which were Chancellor and the ambassador, founded in the Bay of Fitzligo, on the east coast of Scotland, on the 10th of November, 1556. Chancellor was drowned in the wreck, being less fortunate than the Muscovite ambassador, who had the good luck to escape, but the presents and merchandise which he was carried to England were lost. Such was the commencement of the Anglo-Russian Company. A goodly number of expeditions succeeded each other in those parts, but it would be beside our purposes to give an account of them. Let us now return to Cabot. It was in 1554 that Queen Mary of England was married to Philip II, King of Spain. When the latter came to England, he showed himself very ill-disposed towards Cabot, who had abandoned the service of Spain, and who, at this very moment, was procuring for England a commerce which would soon immensely increase the maritime power of an already formidable country. Thus we are not surprised to learn that eight days after the landing of the King of Spain, Cabot was forced to resign his office and his pension, both of which had been bestowed upon him for life by Edward VI. Worthington was nominated in his place. Mr. Nichols thinks that this dishonorable man, who had some quarrels with the law, had a secret mission to seize among Cabot's plans, maps, instructions, and projects, those which could be of use to Spain. 
The fact is that all these documents are now lost, at least unless they may yet be discovered among the archives of Simancas. At the end of this period, history completely loses sight of the old mariner. The same mystery which hangs over his birth also envelopes the place and date of his death. His immense discoveries, his cosmographical works, his study of the variations of the magnetic needle, his wisdom, his humane disposition, and his honorable conduct place Sebastian Cabot in the foremost rank among discoverers. A figure lost in the shadow and vagueness of legend until our own day, Cabot owes it to his biographers, to Biddle, de Vanzac, and Nichols, that he is now better known, more highly appreciated, and for the first time really placed in the light. End of the second part. Chapter 3, Part 1, B. Recording by Todd.